0: People think of cities as like these government entities that require a lot of big government. If you were to look at it in a more granular way, like if you were to look at a specific block in a city, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like a libertarian ideal writ large in the sense that any given block in a city has dozens of businesses. And if it was built before zoning, it has potentially hundreds of homes built above that. And so you've got hundreds of people or thousands of people kind of in what Jane Jacobs described as the street ballet of living their day-to-day life, participating in voluntary exchange and thousands upon thousands of business transactions. And so that's a very complex process that I think is voluntary and bottom-up and does not require a lot of government planning necessarily because when any given person wakes up in the day and participates in these transactions, they're not consulting their government on what to do. They're consulting their own internal needs. And so um, I kind of see libertarianism in cities in a lot of ways. And I think that when cities follow that libertarian impulse, they do really well. And I think the barrier to all of this type of thing is political. Like, it makes sense on paper. I don't see how anybody can't think that it makes sense but there's so many like little special interests and sort of patronage mills that exist within our city governments that it's hard to imagine these programs really happening. But I think above all my answer for all of it would pretty much just be let the market work.
1: Welcome to An Architecture, episode 30. We've talked a little bit in the past about the market urbanism movement, most prominently in episode 18, which was a conversation between Adam Hengels, who founded the Market Urbanism blog, and Patrick Schumacher. However, now that we've reached our landmark episode 30, we've been a bit remiss in that we've never really done a proper deep dive into the ideas of market urbanism. The market urbanism movement has been a big influence on us, In particular, I had very little knowledge of the built environment and the planning industry and all that when we first started this podcast. And so I put myself through a bit of a crash course to familiarize myself with a lot of the ideas that were floating around. And it was a huge help to find various writers within the market urbanism movement, because these guys were already saying a lot of stuff from a perspective very similar to our own. I think Adam Hengels is credited with coining the term market urbanism. As Joe mentioned, I had recorded an event with Adam a couple of years ago and got to meet him and a few of the other writers over at the original Market Urbanism blog, uh, like Nolan Gray and Stephen Smith, who runs the At Market Urbanism Twitter account. That original Market Urbanism blog has influenced a number of other people who are calling themselves market urbanists. And one of the most prominent purveyors of market urbanism out there on the scene today is Scott Byer. He is the founder of the Market Urbanism Report which is a blog and podcast that continues to develop and popularize the ideas of market urbanism. We've been wanting to highlight the ideas of market urbanism for a long time. We invited Scott on to give a broad overview of the concepts of market urbanism, with a particular focus on trying to sort of demystify some of the industry jargon that you might run into if you're following any urbanist writers. Scott has a great resource on his site, which is a post called What is Market Urbanism? And this is a list of about 40 terms, which gives a brief explanation of what these terms mean, as well as the market urbanism position on these issues. We initially started the interview thinking that we'd sort of go through this list and give kind of a list of definitions. But once we got into it, we quickly realized that it was much more interesting just to have a free-flowing conversation rather than to be stopping things and defining terms the whole way through. So if there's any terms that are mentioned that we don't sufficiently explain within the episode, then you can visit our show notes for this episode, which is anarchitecturepodcast.com 30. And we'll link to that What is Market Urbanism article. We really appreciate what Scott and some of the other urbanists out there are doing. As you'll hear, Scott is pretty knowledgeable, not just about the big ideas of market urbanism, but about the specific things that are going on in lots of cities across the U.S., as well as internationally. We see ourselves as kind of color commentary on some of this stuff, whereas guys like Scott are really down in the trenches looking into these specific issues in various cities. As we said in our intro to our interview with Chuck Marone from Strong Towns, we explicitly come at these issues from an ideological libertarian anarchist standpoint, where we want to push things right out to the extremes of eliminating government involvement and try to figure out how we can make that work. As Scott says in the interview... He's kind of taken the opposite approach where he's come at things from a much more pragmatic urbanist perspective, looking at specific issues within cities. And that exploration has led him in a more libertarian direction. There were a few points in the interview where I thought we might get a bit of pushback from Scott from a more pragmatic standpoint, saying, okay, well, you know, that sounds nice in theory, but in practice, we live in the real world and there's only certain things that can actually get done. And I was surprised to find him agreeing with us more than I thought he would on some of these issues and on some of the approaches that we would prefer to take. So I think that presents a good example of the argument we've made in the past that urban issues and issues related to the built environment there's a natural affinity for more libertarian solutions, not from an ideological perspective, but simply because these are the approaches that really work in cities. We started the interview talking generally about what market urbanism is and what that means. Then we broke it down into three broad categories of housing, transportation, and city governance. In housing, we talked about concepts like zoning and why it came to be the way it is, whether or not cities have a responsibility to try to preserve property values. We went through some jargon words here like ADUs, accessory dwelling units, filtering, and inclusionary zoning. In transportation, we talked about various forms of private transport that exist and that could exist in the absence of government transit systems. We talked about the challenges of providing and creating right-of-ways without government, and we touched on ways that mass transit could be funded with value capture through transit-oriented development. We discussed how complex street grids can be managed and the importance of pricing not only street use, but even sidewalks and curb space, and the benefits that that could have in facilitating both mass transit as well as microtransit solutions like bike shares and scooters. The last category here was city governance, where we talk about why city services shouldn't be run by a government and how they could be better provided by a free market, then of course we need to figure out how all of those services can be funded and monetized without taxation. And we talk about how paid city services could be made accessible to people with limited means. As we're recording this, I've just found out that Scott is going to be speaking at an event with two former Anarchitecture guests, Patrick Schumacher, the principal of Zaha Hadid Architects, and Titus Gable, the founder of Free Private Cities. Yeah, it's like the Anarchitecture podcast all-star game. I feel like we're the ones that really made that event happen. Yeah, we gave them the An Architecture bump. This is a free live stream event, which is being hosted by Free Private Cities on July 18th, 2020. And we'll put a link to that on our show notes page at anarchitecturepodcast.com slash 30. So here's our interview with Scott Beyer, founder of the Market Urbanism Report. We're here with Scott Beyer from the Market Urbanism Report. Welcome to Architecture Podcast, Scott. Thanks for having me. So, this episode is going to be sort of a broad overview of the ideas of market urbanism. So, first off, how would you define market urbanism?
0: Market urbanism is the cross between free market policy and urban issues. And so, that would be the tagline. To go a little bit deeper beyond the tagline, I would say market urbanism is two separate things. On one hand, I defined it as a theory in the sense that it's asking how would cities and architecture and placemaking work if it were entirely private, if there were not governments planning cities, but instead it was the work of millions of different private actors working together and following their own self-interest and seeking mutually beneficial relationships. Uh, How would cities really grow and unfold and be planned in that context? So the reason I say that's theoretical is that most cities are not run that way around the world. A vast majority of cities are run by the government and planned by the government. Besides just maybe a few exceptions, there aren't really many fully private cities. Beyond just market urbanism as a theory, I also look at market urbanism as a practical set of reforms that can actually be used and applied in cities on a policy level. And so that's the type of stuff that I tend to be more interested in because it's more likely. So it's looking at, at a city, particularly, and I focus on U.S. cities because that's where I'm from. I'm looking at different U.S. cities and urban contexts and saying, what are all the different ways that they can be reformed? Not to necessarily pursue full-on libertarianism, but to pursue maybe market-oriented reforms that kind of push in that direction. And so um, this reform package that I'm talking about usually deals with housing and transportation and public services. And I know since you're doing a, a pretty long episode today on uh, market urbanism and what it really means, I know that we're going to be kind of looking into those three categories of issues.
1: Yeah, well probably won't be much of a deep dive on any one particular issue, but definitely uh, we'll try to cover the gamut of the issues that are out there. I'm kind of curious to understand how you got into these ideas. Did you come at it from more of a libertarian perspective or were you sort of interested in urbanism first? How, how did that all come about?
0: I'd say the urbanism part came first. Living in cities, you know, I, I spent a lot of my late teens and early 20s living in New York City and a number of other U.S. cities and becoming very interested in the problems that, that they deal with, you know, the high housing prices, the homelessness, the sprawl, you know, the way that the automobile dominates the urban landscape and causes all kinds of externalities. I became very interested in why economic development projects were so hard to really get through the pipeline and actually be approved. I became interested in things like why do so many U.S. downtowns empty out at 5 p.m. Oftentimes, and there's not really anything going on after that. And so it, it seemed to me that there were like certain very problematic conditions that defined a lot of American cities. And so I went through a very prolonged research period, and that's kind of when I became more libertarian because I began to see that a lot of the problems that do define our cities were caused by the government and were caused by kind of these top-down socially engineered policies that ramrodded cities into being a certain way. And that prevented them from being like more dynamic economies. That's when a number of writers became really influential in my thinking, you know, obviously the early market urbanism blog, the earlier one was very influential to me, uh, writers like Jane Jacobs and Ed Glazer talking about how markets can better be used in cities. And that's, that's sort of how I evolved into becoming sort of a libertarian urbanist or a market urbanist.
1: Yeah, it's funny because we've kind of taken the opposite tack where we kind of started out more as, you know, just libertarians. And we we kind of recognize the urban issues as something that we could kind of get into and have a bit of a a focus on our podcast. But yeah, we've come across a lot of those same influences as well. I've read Jane Jacobs, Ed Glazer, and and of course, all the, the earlier market urbanism stuff as well. Yeah, part of the reason that we like talking about urbanism um, as it relates to libertarianism is that we see it as a a potential conduit to bring these libertarian free market ideas to a broader audience, because a lot of the kind of things you just mentioned, for one thing, it's very visceral, like people live in cities, they they see these problems. And I think that when we start to explain it in the terms you just did of, of why these things have come to be and what some potential solutions might be, I think that we can do that in a way that its they're not necessarily politicized, like left and right politicized issues. Some of them are, you know, they have their detractors here and there. I think for us, we see urbanism as a good way to talk about some concrete issues with people and introduce concepts of free markets and libertarianism more generally.
0: Yeah, and I think that the two have a great deal to do with each other. People might not think that offhand because when they think of a city, they think of what you need to even have a city is you need to have these really complex, top-down infrastructure projects that require some government organization. That's how it's often perceived. And so it's like, how does a city get a, a street grid? Well, you had to have a government come in and oftentimes enact eminent domain and various other broader taxation and various other planning mechanisms In order to put that street grid down. People think of cities as like these government entities that require a lot of big government. If you were to look at it in a more granular way, like if you were to look at a specific block in a city, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like a libertarian ideal writ large in the sense that any given block in a city has dozens of businesses. And if it was built before zoning, it has potentially hundreds of homes built above that. And so you've got hundreds of people or thousands of people kind of in what jane jacobs described as the street ballet of living their day-to-day life participating in voluntary exchange and thousands upon thousands of business transactions and so that's a very complex process that i think is voluntary and bottom-up and does not require a lot of government planning necessarily because when any given person wakes up in the day and participates in these transactions they're not consulting their government on what to do. They're consulting their own internal needs. And so um, I kind of see libertarianism in cities in a lot of ways. And I think that when cities follow that libertarian impulse, they do really well.
1: Yeah. It's like, you know, you look at these neighborhoods and cities and there's a bodega on, on certain corners, there's a laundromat on somewhere, you know, next door or something like that. And it's not like there's somebody who's ever come and, And said, okay, well, we need to have this many bodegas in this neighborhood. We need to have this many laundromats and all that. It's the market that's really determined that allocation of resources and and of uses of those spaces. And the same goes with, like I said, before you had all these restrictive zoning with the allocation of, of housing and residential units and all that kind of stuff. So you mentioned earlier that there are three main areas of focus, those being housing, transportation, and public services. So why don't we get into some of those details with housing? What do you see as some of the key challenges in cities and how can market urbanism approaches try to resolve those?
0: So I think the broader market urbanism take on housing is that we want it to be a free flowing, unregulated market oriented process. And so a market oriented approach to housing would basically say that people can live in the type of housing that they want to and live where they want to and live at the densities and the, uh, the level of demand that they want to. And so if, if cities follow these market demand signals, a big market urbanism premise, again, this is sort of the theoretical version of market urbanism, would ask, what would cities look like if you could just build housing anywhere and development can happen in any which way? What density would they be? What would the layout be? So on one hand, the market urbanism take on housing It's sort of like this abstract question of how would cities develop under a free market? How would they look? How would they work? But I think getting, again, more to the pragmatic level, the market urbanism take is looking at very specific acute housing challenges that take place in U.S. cities, things like really high home prices and inelastic markets and homelessness and um, the issue of rent seeking and things and zoning and things like that, and saying, what are the specific policies we can pursue to overcome those barriers. And so I could go down the list and I, I think we will to some degree, but uh, I'd, I'd start with something like zoning, the idea of restrictive zoning and the idea that like we have these really hot urban markets that have really restrictive zoning. And so it prevents people from being able to agglomerate in them and live close to jobs.
1: Yeah. We've talked a bit about restrictive zoning previously. Obviously that's you know one of our key things as libertarians focused on the built environment. You know, that's a big topic that comes up. Can you talk about some of the specific issues with zoning and how they impact the development of housing?
0: Sure. So I think the main zoning that I'm against is the idea of having single family, which I would call restrictive zoning, that's placed in hot urban areas. So for example, San Francisco would be an example of one of the most productive cities in the United States, it's one of the leading job markets. And people think of it as kind of a a dense city, but really like 75% of it is either zoned single family or is something very close to single family, like like maybe duplexes. That really emphasizes just the fact that you have all kinds of people who wanna live in the city. The, The prices of the land and of the median home prices really reflect this high demand and yet the city cannot change. Like a developer who buys a land plot in a single family zone neighborhood either cannot change that zoning or if they attempt to get some sort of waiver or upzoning, they're going through years of planning. That's like the very specific regulation that I would be most against is that restrictive zoning. But then if you get into the details a little bit more, you're dealing with things like setback requirements, lot coverage requirements, Parking minimums, density requirements, the number of units that that can be rented out to non-family members—I mean, it really like it goes on and on as far as all these different regulations metastasizing to to completely control how a given lot can be developed.
1: Yeah, I I, you know I I work a lot with zoning codes with some of my projects and. I mean it's like you go through them and it's you're right it's not just any one thing that causes a problem. I mean there are some big ones like obviously if you have a single family residence zone obviously that that's going to be a problem. The minimum lot sizes per dwelling unit is a big problem. That's the one I often see people getting hung up on. I have a project going on right now where it's it's a like a 100 year old building that has six units in it and it's in an area that's zoned where they, it's like a character district or whatever and maybe we can talk about what that means where they have these little graphics of what the building should look like in the district. And all the little graphics look just like this building. And if you look at it, you're like, okay, that building probably has, you know, four units, that building probably has six or eight units. But then you go down through the list and you get to the minimum lot size per dwelling unit. And if I do the math on this lot, it says that I'm supposed to have only two units for what has been for a hundred years, a six unit building. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I have a developer who wants to add on to that. And if you were to put an addition onto the building, just to, not to add units, but just to expand the, kind of make the built units work a little better that are there, it would kick him back to having only two units in the building. <laughs> I mean, this is the, this is the kind of stuff that is just so counterintuitive. And I mean, I wonder if people who are putting these things forward and, and sitting on, you know, planning boards and zoning boards, if they even understand this stuff, I mean, do, do they even understand what the impact of some of these things are, or are they just, you know, following the letter of the law?
0: I don't know. I mean, I I was having a conversation the other day with a public official who had just been elected into the city council in my city. And um, we were discussing the zoning of what we call like a a big husk in the middle of our downtown. It's a large, what for us is a skyscraper that it's about eight stories, uh, which is tall for my city. And It has been a shell for almost a decade because the financing fell through during the recession and it never really got back and got redeveloped. And so you've just got this big empty husk. And we were discussing the zoning and the way that it had originally become as a hotel and now they want to rezone it into housing. The official I was speaking with was saying that he wanted to have a minimum number of units of something like 10 to 12 allowable units that they can be subdivided into. And I was just trying to explain that when you do that in an eight story building that means the units are going to be massive you know if you can only allow twelve units if you're if an eight story building is only zoned for twelve units, they're going to be very large and very expensive and if they can be zoned for a hundred units then basically that means you have a bunch of efficiencies that would probably sell for relatively cheap to answer your question like i no, I don't think people understand necessarily. Like I don't think they have the math in hand really to understand like how the financing and how the um the regulation really dictates the price of a unit.
1: Right. So what do you think has motivated some of these restrictive zoning requirements historically? Was it just a matter of, you know, in nineteen seventy six a town took a look at what was developed and said this is good enough, and said, "This is what it, what it shall be forevermore." Was it that dumb, or is there some ongoing set of priorities that people are working into these zoning ordinances and and comprehensive plans and things that just seem to persist year after year as as cities are expanding and growing?
0: Well, it it usually goes way back, for, way back further than 1976. In a lot of cases, it's like early 20th century stuff. I think a lot of cities. They grew kind of using a combination of private deed restrictions and municipal zoning. Those tended to grow together during the progressive era. And I think it was some combination of wanting to be racially exclusive, wanting to be exclusive towards certain classes of people. I mean, people understood then, you know, that if you allow a duplex on, on a single lot, it's going to be more affordable to people than allowing a single family home on that same lot. And to them, that was a bad thing. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think it it kind of grew out of race and class exclusion and maybe some other things too. I mean, I think people had a natural desire to want to separate industry from housing because that separation had not necessarily been prominent in our industrial cities and the mix of residency and, and industry created a lot of problems so I think there was a legitimate like desire to use zoning to separate residents and industry. And then I think from there, it just kind of, if you're talking about the 1920s, like Euclid v. Ambler was the initial Supreme Court case that legalized zoning. And I think you were looking at those different, some of those things I mentioned there as really the rationales for why it became legal. But then I think of the nearly 100 years since then, it has really metastasized into something that's much more subjective. Something that has more to do with like how a building looks and whether or not we want to keep this lot a greenfield or actually have housing there. And obviously, the growth of the automobile brought traffic problems. So that became a whole other new reason to restrict housing. and And so I think the zoning and the reason for wanting to support zoning is more complex than it was back in the 1900s.
1: What do you think about the argument that cities have a responsibility to preserve property values, which is something that's literally written into some zoning ordinances as part of their you know, reason for being? Is there any value or meaning behind that? Is that something that cities should be doing? I mean, you kind of mentioned one level where if you have industry going in next to some residences, you could have some kind of externalities that need to be addressed in how one property is affecting another property. But beyond that, we get into things like, like you said, having a duplex in a neighborhood of single families, you know, the idea that that's going to bring down values in the neighborhood. Do you give any credence to the idea that zoning can and should protect property values?
0: Well, I actually have two answers to that. So I think my belief is that no, it should not. That strikes me as being another case of of a certain interest group asking for some sort of regulatory protection that protects their own financial interests, but necessarily excludes other people. And so just as I don't view, for example, I don't view tariffs <laughs> as a good policy. Like I think that if, if the manufacturing lobby in the United States said, we want to protect our values, like the value of our own enterprise. So we want tariffs that block foreign automobile parts, say. To me, that's not a valid use of state power and the use of regulation. And so I kind of view housing the same way, like, no, an existing entrenched homeowner lobby should not be able to use regulation to protect their property values. That said, kind of the interesting irony of it is that if those regulations were not in place, I actually think their property values would increase because if you can build more on your lands, if people at least have the option to maximize the value of their property to the highest and best use that will increase their property values. And so that's always kind of been the conundrum of all this and something that doesn't make a lot of sense to me uh, as far as like why people would would necessarily call for these regulations.
1: Yeah, there's a house just next door to me that's been applying for a few years to, to do a, I think they want to try to subdivide the lot and build a second unit on there. And, you know, I'm seeing the typical kind of NIMBY response to that where, you know, of course, there's, you know, character of the neighborhood is is the big one that that they always throw out, which means nothing. (laughs) But then, uh, you know, the stuff, like you said before, complaining about traffic on the road. I mean, this is literally, this road maybe gets like five cars a day. It's just a tiny little side street. Right. But then the other thing is, yeah, you know, complaining about, oh, it's going to take down the value of homes in the neighborhood. And I'm thinking about it. I'm going, you know what, with my lot, if I know, or if a buyer knows that they can buy my lot and subdivide it, that's going to have a a lot more of a positive impact on the property value of my home than preventing that from happening. Right. Just the fact that it's got a single family house on it now isn't really what's driving the value. I mean, especially in these days where within a certain proximity to a city, it's really, you know, location, location, location drives a lot of the value. And when you can subdivide a lot like that, effectively what you're doing is you're, you're capturing that sort of location value of the land twice. And so it creates this incentive to develop more densely, to do some sort of infill type projects that both provide more affordable housing in that area, as well as increase the property values for the existing owners. So yeah, like you said, I <laughs> I think people just don't do the math on a lot of this stuff. There's a lot of kind of knee jerk, NIMBY type responses, and they're just not really thinking it through.
0: Yeah, I don't really understand it either. But I will say that One regulatory reform that has proven pretty popular in the United States very relatively, like it's kind of the one market urbanism success story that we're starting to see is you'll see these state or city level housing bills that say single family zoning is effectively not in effect by like people can build up to the next increment by right. So for example, Minneapolis legalized duplexes by right across the city and I think what's going on there is the reason that was just popular enough to be able to pass is that homeowners did realize, like, hey, if I can build an ADU on my in my backyard, that's more money for me. So it's sort of like if a developer can build a five-story condo several blocks away, that doesn't necessarily increase the homeowner's property value because that's actually competition for them. But if they can upzone, slightly upzone their own property then suddenly it becomes a financial win for them and they're willing to like, you know, back the legislation.
1: All right. So you just mentioned one of the potential solutions out there, which is ADUs. Part of this episode is we're trying to demystify some of the jargon around urbanism and market urbanism. So can you talk a little bit about what an ADU is and why they exist and how they can help to solve the housing issue?
0: Yeah, it's, it stands for accessory dwelling unit and it is a, an additional unit to um, a single family home that can either be attached or detached from the main structure. So an example of an attached ADU would be like a basement that has been retrofitted to actually be housing and is rented out on the private market. An example of a detached ADU would be like a cottage home in the backyard that might have been used for storage before, but it's been kind of fixed up and turned into a home. That's one option for more housing. It's not my favorite personally, because it kinda has this ring of like, um, you know, we won't build proper housing for the millennials, but we'll put them in the basement <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. that'll be their home. And so it's kinda like a option, a last resort in my opinion, but it's better than nothing.
1: Yeah, I agree. I actually have a have a building permit out right now to to put an ADU in my basement and a house I moved into uh last year. So we have a walk up basement and we're gonna fit that up to be an, an office space for ourselves and, and... Than an ADU for when we want to rent it out. So I mean, for me, like an ADU, it's this kind of fiction created by zoning ordinances where first it's like first they take something away, which is your ability to build a duplex or or a a triplex or whatever. But then they'd give you back this little morsel of something that you could build called an ADU and say, well, okay, you know, I guess you could have one more person, you know, live on your property. But and then they put all these restrictions on it. For me, it had to be owner-occupied. There's, you know, all kinds of different restrictions that they tie in there when all they need to do is what you said earlier, just allow places to to get to that next increment of development Just say, if you have a single family, you could build a duplex. If you have, you know, and maybe you have to meet certain requirements like your septic system or whatever, but those are just technical requirements that can be sorted out. And beyond that, let people build what the market will bear.
0: Yeah. It's always kind of struck me as the housing version of breadcrumbs. Like, yeah. we're just going to sprinkle these down to you. But I mean... Anytime I voice this on social media, people get kind of upset because I I think there are a lot of very staunch ADU defenders. Um and they'll they'll say, No, you have to come see my ADU. Like I, I just renovated my basement and it's beautiful and like it's ready, it's it's getting all kinds of rental income and so it's better than nothing. But um I think building more new housing, the more new housing we build, the better quality it's going to be and more spacious and have more modern amenities. So I look at actually like what people would call luxury condos as something that that's actually like good quality housing. And the more we build it, the less luxury it will be. And and the more people will be able to really like tap into good quality housing.
1: So related to that, let me let's see if we can get to the flip side of that. As you said, obviously, one solution out there is to build more new housing, right? That puts more units on the market. You increase the supply and hopefully that helps to keep prices down. But this is also, I'll throw out another jargon word here, which is filtering. There's also this idea that there's an important role to be played by existing older housing that's already out there on the market. Can you talk a little bit about how that works?
0: Yeah, and I'm a huge fan of that process. I think that that happens in multiple industries besides just housing. In any organic elastic market for any commodity, the more of something new that you build, the cheaper the older stock will become. So the used car market as an example New cars are generally more expensive because they come with the shine of novelty and they have newer amenities. And that naturally allows the depreciation and the lowering of prices for older cars that you buy off a used car lot. I'd like to see uh, housing begin to work that way, and I think that it does in markets that are elastic. And so you see that in the markets that allow a lot of new housing, the older neighborhoods tend to depreciate over time and the uh, housing becomes cheaper and an option for the lower and middle class.
1: Yeah. And of course, when you start talking about filtering, you know, quite often the first knee jerk response you get is, you know, the, the fear of gentrification because you're talking about building new, you know, high value luxury units or not necessarily luxury. but higher quality units than what may be existing in that neighborhood. And then, of course, the fear that people get is, well, what about the people who live there now? I know if you're tearing down my apartment building and putting up something that I can't afford, then I'm going to be out on the street. I heard a statistic on another podcast where this guy was saying that the reality of gentrification is that there's something like less than 10% of people in a neighborhood get displaced when a whole neighborhood gentrifies. And those people who do get displaced typically end up relocating to another neighborhood of essentially similar quality to the one that they left. I think there's a lot of wishful thinking that goes on with these sort of gentrification discussions where it's like, you know, people kind of say, well, like you're building new apartments in this neighborhood. So really, it's the people who live there who kind of deserve those new apartments. And people like to blame the market for these sort of outcomes where it's like, well, you know, sorry, you can't afford that. But at the end of the day, it's, it's like, well, you're not necessarily any worse off if, if you're able to move to another place that's kind of similar quality to where you left. I mean, sure, there's people have attachments to places and all that. But if it's a, a big enough and sort of fluid enough city, then there should be plenty of options for someone to move to some new place. The other side of that was that when gentrification happens, the existing residents who do own their apartments or their units or whatever tend to benefit from the increased property values just because there may be new amenities that come in or, you know, the overall kind of attitude about that neighborhood improves. So whenever you hear about gentrification, quite often you hear this sort of a single anecdote about the one shop owner that got kicked out because they wanted to put in some sort of high-end store or something like that, or or a high-end coffee shop, or, you know, the single mother who got kicked out of her apartment or whose building was torn down, you know, and she had to go move somewhere else. I think when you look at the actual outcomes of that, on a kind of a citywide scale, it's a lot less worrisome than what the opponents of filtering and all that stuff would have you think.
0: Right. If I were a mayor or some sort of elected official within a city that was dealing with gentrification, and I actually did have to answer to people's concerns on this type of thing, I think there would be a good way to to achieve a middle ground if people are actually getting displaced. So I think in the worst case scenario that you mentioned, it would be kind of like an older project that was affordable is getting torn down and replaced with new luxury units. You know, if a city really wanted to be creative, they could effectively say allow the new developments because we need more housing, but then think up like some sort of voucher program that enables people to stay in the neighborhood if they want to and purchase or, or rent the new housing. And so that's kind of like a middle ground where you're effectively saying we acknowledge that you're concerned about displacement and we're we're going to work with you and maybe give you some assistance to be able to stay in the neighborhood if that's really what you want to do. But at the same time, you know, you can't just say like your neighborhood is never going to change and nobody else gets to live there because you were there first and that element of the anti-gentrification narrative seems very unreasonable to me. And so, I'm looking for like a middle ground where you can effectively say the neighborhood can change, it can get new development but the people who want to stay can be assisted in staying in the neighborhood.
1: Yeah, and another thing you see a lot related to this issue is things like inclusionary zoning, where actually maybe I'll let you talk on that and kind of define what that is and how it works.
0: Yeah, inclusionary zoning, I've called it rent control 2.0. It has some of the same elements. It's rent control in the sense that it's a price control, which price controls and standard economic theory don't work ever anywhere. But yeah, the, the effect is that You tell a developer they can build, by right to a certain level if they provide a certain percentage of units as being affordable. And what it has been found to do is, like with any price control, it it ends up just discouraging housing supply. Having to account for those underpriced units really hurts the developer's bottom line and prevents the project from being able to pencil. And so there actually is economic literature showing that that is the effect, that inclusionary zoning actually does lead to less housing than otherwise would happen. Even in the case when the housing does get built, what it just causes is for the market rate units to be more expensive because the developer has to make up for the the losses some way and so they just upcharge the market rate units. And so it's not really accomplishing anything. It's just kind of like, it's forcing one group of people to subsidize another group of people.
1: All right. Well, there's probably a lot more we could say about housing, but why don't we leave it there? Because we do have some more stuff we want to talk about. Let's jump to transportation and talk about some of the issues that come up with transit, both in cities and in suburban and rural areas. How should market urbanists be looking at cities the, and the way that transit should be functioning? Because I think there's kind of a, a tension here for us market urbanists, where on the urbanist side, we see the need and the value of transit systems. But then on the market-based side, we don't see very many transit systems, at least in this day and age, that are products of market processes. Do you want to talk generally about that? And then maybe we can jump into some specific modes of transit and some of the issues with each of them.
0: Sure. And so I think, again, kind of like what I started with housing, I'll go ahead and give the philosophical market urbanism take on transport at a philosophical level, like we already established. If we have a city that is unplanned and where the development can kind of just happen any which way and based on consumer demand, I think where a lot of people would jump in then and say, okay, so if you have all this density and you have all this like kind of growth chaos, so to speak, how are people going to get around? And is a market really efficient enough that it's going to like rise up and and sort of like provide services that get people around in, in an efficient fashion without any planning? And my answer is actually that yes, I think it can. I think that humans have always been mobile and they've always valued and put a high price on mo- on the ability to move and mobility. And so I do think that the private market would rise up and really provide transit or some sort of transportation services to get people around efficiently to now pivot to where does that happen specifically i've found that uh that there are a lot of examples of privatization and transport in a lot of cases you do have city street like if you go to a lot of uh, developing world cities you have surprisingly developed mass transit networks and a lot of them are very bottom up i find that a, a common scenario for example, in Mexico City, uh, they call them Paceros, which are these little minibuses that go all around and have informal routes that are often guided based on consumer demand or like a specific request from a, a given patron. And so they're flexible and, they, and they're and they kind of like efficient. The drop-offs and pickups happen very quickly and they're very cheap. And I view that as kind of like that's market urbanism. That's That's an example of market urbanism. And You do see it. uh, They have different names, but you see these sorts of nascent transportation industries pop up all over the world where it's allowed.
1: Yeah, it's like the Uber of driving.
0: Yes. Well, we have our example is Uber, you know, it's sort of like that's the first world example. But um, that's really not innovative. It's sort of just piggybacking on what happens all through the second and third world's.
1: Yeah, it's funny, you know, with, with libertarians, there's this running joke, which is, you know, who will build the roads? Because that's usually the first thing that you get asked if you try to tell someone that infrastructure can be developed privately. But it is, you know, when you start to think about it, it, it is challenging, because you get to cities where you've got all these people, all these kind of different, potentially conflicting interests. And yet somehow, you know, they, they all find a way to make it work. I was reading um, Alain Berthoud's book, which is uh, Order Without Design. And he's, very much on board with the whole bottom-up planning. Basically, very light touch in terms of zoning and regulation and all that stuff. But the one thing that he is pretty firm on, he's he's like, well, the government has to determine where the the kind of key routes are and, and, and the key roads and build key infrastructure like bridges and stuff like that. And you know, of course, as a as an anarchist, I'm looking at that going, mm, no, I don't think so. <laughs> like, like we'll we'll figure it out. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I would dispute the point too. I think there are examples of where private infrastructure has been built all the time. And I th- I think that there are still examples. I mean, here in the US, like Elon Musk has been kicking and screaming to be able to build Hyperloops for years now. And I think it's the only issue that he's really facing is the government won't grant him the permission. And it's kind of hard to like carve out the right away. And so I-, I think the one thing where Alain Berteau may have a point is i think in the developed world and probably in a, in a lot of developing countries it is hard to find the right of way to be able to develop a complex and built out transportation route but if those right of way challenges if that aspect of it gets solved then we've seen over and over again that private capital will come in and build a transportation route as long as you know they know the the customer demand is there so i mean that's not unprecedented by any stretch
1: yeah isn't there what is it the the bright line what is that like a sort of light rail commuter train or something that's just opened up in florida
0: yes that's a high speed rail that is connected last i checked it was miami to fort lauderdale but i think it's going further north and again that's a right away issue that they've had to like you know spend a lot of money and time to really settle on but another example would be there's a proposed bullet train between Houston and Dallas. That's hitting right away battles. There's a bullet train suggested between Los Angeles and Las Vegas that is uh, private. I want to say that's Virgin that's trying to build that. And that too is hitting right away issues. So it's kind of like the demand is there. The capital is there to build these things, but it's the planning and the government situation that prevents a lot of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess you could see If someone wants to build a high-speed rail a block away from me, you know, that's obviously going to bring in some noise issues and stuff. I rode the Acela train when it was fairly new back in, I don't know, late 90s or something like that. And it's supposed to be this high-speed rail going from Boston to New York to DC. And when I rode it, my impression was that the thing just slowed down through every little town through Connecticut. It had to slow down to like 20 miles an hour or something like that because, you know, obviously all these kind of NIMBYs there have probably negotiated some sort of agreement about you know, how fast this thing can go through their neighborhood. So I'm sitting on this thing going, like, you call this a high-speed rail? And then, of course, I've been to Japan, where you know, high-speed rail is, is just the way you get around there, and it's, and it's fantastic. But as a libertarian, this is the sort of thing that it gets a little bit tricky, because you are talking about people who are you who know, have existing homes in these places, and you want to come and build a high-speed rail or something like that, or even a highway or whatever, through their neighborhood. And you know there will be nuisances that that introduces, so it can be challenging as an urbanist. you say, "Well, this is really the best thing for this area and like you you can kind of see long term the benefits that it's going to bring. But then, as a libertarian, you're also going, "Oh, but you know these people have their property rights, and they should have some sort of say in whether these nuisances can impact their properties Now, we've talked a lot about privatizing infrastructure, and we have talked about these issues of nuisances and stuff as well. My thinking is that when you have an issue like this, there are ways that you can negotiate with those existing property owners, and I think that if it's done through some sort of a a government body who's meant to represent, you know, the, this whole town or this whole group of of people, then it's sort of this, you know, one step removed from everyone where you're going to get some sort of either some sort of sweetheart deal that happens where, you know, the the developer gets their way and then all the neighbors, you know, are just going to be fed up with this thing for its entire existence. Or it could go the other way, where the neighbors basically have complete sway over the the local government and just block the project. But I think that if the private developers could negotiate directly with you know some of these property owners, that there would be a much more amenable process that they could discover.
0: Yeah, and what you described as Coast Theorem, uh, the idea yeah. that. Private interests are going to be more efficient at negotiating that sort of thing than, like you said, a government body that is subject to regulatory capture and various manipulations and bribes that are going to bring inefficiency into the process. The Coase theorem effect effectively says if you want to obstruct somebody from doing something, you have to be willing to pay for it or they have to be willing to pay you. That brings a sense of like what the actual value of the um negotiation is and, and the demand that they're making
1: yeah and you get people talking about these uh, Pigouvian taxes and stuff where it's like um i think Pigou um, was influenced by Coase or vice versa i can't remember but the idea is that the you know you have a judge basically determine like what is the financial impact and then essentially that developer has to pay a tax and theoretically i guess that somehow goes to the owners as a benefit but um i think in practice that that's seldom the case <laughs> Yeah. I mean, there there can always be some kind of trade-off of benefits and mitigation. I think the the critical question for us is what is that process of allocating that mitigation of deciding what is, you know, what is a nuisance or what is a kind of a property violation? And then what's a reasonable type of mitigation to address that without necessarily preventing the project outright?
0: I've heard some different ideas about that as far as like, you know, if you're a developer in Manhattan and you you want to build a 100-story tower, maybe there should be some sort of mechanism by which you can effectively pay off the people who are going to be impacted by it, who are going to, like, receive the shadows and the higher traffic. And, you know, maybe, like, you can pay them a stipend to cover for the impacts, but then the actual ability to build the tower is still by right. And so it's a more efficient process. But I guess... I'd probably err more toward the side of they should just be able to build the tower. <laughs> and and if you live in New York City, you should just accept that there is going to be towers built next to you because you're living in a dynamic city where many, many people want to live. And so I get the libertarian argument for um, wanting to have some sort of coast-related paradigm, but I guess I'm more of just the, the mindset that things should be allowed by right. The other example you use is the high-speed rail, of what happens if somebody's living in a quiet community and then suddenly a high-speed rail goes through it. Well, I would actually argue that the high-speed rail is probably going to dramatically increase your property values. If a high-speed rail exists, there's probably going to be a big demand for building densely around it. And so if you don't any longer want to live near that area, you can sell to a developer potentially for a massive windfall. And so I'm not really viewing you at that point as a figure of sympathy. like You just got a huge windfall because you were lucky enough to have a home near a high-speed rail route. So, I mean, I guess that's kind of my perspective on that.
1: Yeah. And that kind of gets into this idea of like uh, transit-oriented development, where when you do put in this infrastructure, it actually incentivizes more dense development around, you know, let's say, the train stops.
0: Well, yeah, I think that's a – I generally am a, am a huge fan of that and think that uh, we don't really do it enough in the U.S., I think a lot of Asian cities have really mastered this idea of what they call value capture. And in some cases, the train companies actually own the surrounding land plots, and then they develop them really densely, and that becomes a form of revenue that then it's kind of like a feedback loop where the revenue from the development gets thrown into improving the train service, and then the train service is improved, so it increases the value of the development to me that's a very like sensible whole way to go about urban development and i think in the us we've we have not really pursued this very much you know there are whole big transit agencies like new jersey transit and mta and sf bart that do actually own a lot of the adjacent land to their stations but the regulatory hurdles prevent them from being able to densely develop or in other cases The agencies just aren't well organized enough to be able to develop it themselves.
1: Well, nor do they have the incentive to develop it because they're not necessarily, you know, motivated by profit, you know, evil profits like a business might be. So I think some people would see developing and selling government-owned land as kind of selling the family silver, right? (laughs) That they're giving away something that everybody owns. And if they're just developing that and selling it off, then There's somehow a loss there for everybody else in the city.
0: Yeah. And I had one more thing I wanted to say about transportation that we were talking about earlier, which is that if you do accept the theory that Elaine Berteau advanced, that infrastructure does have to be public and that there does have to be some sort of public authority carving out right-of-way, I'll actually meet him at that point and say that he probably is right in a lot of contexts, like in a lot of existing cities that are already quite built out. It probably would be very difficult for a private company to just come in and build a new road or build a new high-speed rail. But I think the other side of that coin, which I think libertarians should think about then, is if you do have this public right-of-way system, how then do you manage it in a way that is market-oriented and kind of libertarian-oriented? And so I think that like 90% of that really boils down to how do you charge for it? And so I'm very much of a of an advocate of saying like if you have a a street grid in a city that you should not just give away some of the space for free parking, and you shouldn't just give away other space for free bus lanes, and you shouldn't give away other space for free single occupancy vehicle lanes. It should all be priced based on market dynamics. And what I think you'd get is a lot of you'd get a lot of variation in usage because I think that different cities have different needs. And different consumers are willing to pay for various activities. And so you'd see a lot of like really um, dynamic and innovative changes in how space is used in cities. I think a lot of the on-street parking would just completely disappear. And you'd probably have a lot of like, a lot of that space would be transformed into lanes for buses. Because I think a a bus full of people who want to get someplace quickly are going to outbid just a handful of car owners who want free parking. like They're going to be able to outbid them for that space. And so I think you'd see a lot more, again, it's not full libertarian. You still might be paying that money to a public bureaucracy, but even the market-oriented nature of of the space would um, potentially bring a lot of efficiency.
1: Yeah, we would actually agree with that. We've made some arguments about public space generally and how libertarians should think about it, especially as we think about privatizing public space. And we actually don't like the word privatization here because it implies that it becomes private access as opposed to what is now public access. We like the word divestiture, which implies that you're changing the ownership, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're making that somehow exclusive or like, you know, a gated community of a, of a road network.
0: Yeah. You'll have to educate me on that because I, I haven't really thought a whole lot about the quote unquote privatizing the public space.
1: Yeah. I mean, generally it's kind of what you were just saying. It's thinking about having some form of more public entity, whether that's something like a co-op or a land trust or something, where people who are now occupants of the city who feel like they have an ownership stake in these public spaces and things like roads and and even infrastructure, that you could imagine creating some kind of a a container, you know, a, a public entity that everybody could, if they want to, have an ownership stake in, but that becomes divested from government so it's no longer being funded by taxation and you know being enforced through imprisonment it becomes operated more like let's say like a, a co-op electrical utility or something right where maybe the users are able to become owners of it and they have a set of rules and policies that they follow but it, it's divorced from the entity that we nowadays know as as the government and in that sense it can then become more specialized so that that group of people who's in charge of The roads is not the same group of people who's in charge of the sewer system or the schools. (laughs) right? So that's kind of the, the broad idea there. Another thing is that the process you mentioned where, let's say under government ownership, if you get things to a point where you do have this market pricing of street space, then that actually becomes a bit of an incentive for some sort of private owner to come in and buy that asset. You know, and maintain it long term because then they can actually see what are the potential revenues that could be generated from this space. So, you know, libertarians always kind of like to dream about you know, how do we get from what we have now to a more kind of free market libertarian society. And I think that that's certainly a, a valid step along the way. You know, if you could convince these local governments of the benefit of using proper market pricing, that then they would actually be able to value those assets and understand what they're really worth. And then, you know, in that case if we got to a point where it was socially acceptable to privatize some of these assets, or divest, I should say, some of these assets, then you've actually got market pricing there that investors can refer to.
0: Yeah. And I've I've thought about that quite a lot and, and I'm a huge fan of the idea. I mean, just thinking of a place like New York City, if the curb space were for sale throughout the different boroughs, I think what you would probably see in some cases is you'd see an entity like Uber or maybe bus companies that want to carry more people than an Uber typically does might want to actually buy some of that curb space. And then if they own the sidewalk as well, they could uh, build some bus shelters that are typically probably going to be a lot more attractive than what the public bus company provides. You know, you'd actually address a lot of problems there because a lot of Ubers are now having to double park because they don't have anywhere to pull over. And so I think from their own interest, they would want to have curb space that they could pull over into. And they would also want to have uh, a bus shelter that is viewed as something that is like attractive for their users. And so I can see that sort of transaction taking place all the time. I mean, you could have everything from bike share companies that. Everybody complains now that their bikes are getting littered all over the sidewalks. Well, if bike share companies could purchase some curb space on every block that is now used for free parking and put a bunch of bike storage, they might view that as in their own interest and they might do it. So yeah, I'm a huge fan of that idea.
1: Yeah, exactly. And with this whole thing with the bike share and the scooter share and all this stuff that's going on these days, you know, everyone complains that, oh, there's just these scooters littered all over the sidewalks. And it's like, well, yeah, that's, it's a tragedy of the commons. It's, it's you know, economics 101 is that that's what's going to happen. When you have this, this space that's not owned, it's not allocated, then people are going to use it in whatever, whatever way they want to. And so, you know, instead of actually having a kind of system like you just described where the different users can pay for certain uses of that space... You have these governments coming in with these sort of draconian regulations and restrictions or even kicking out any businesses from operating like that in their cities, which, of course, it doesn't benefit anyone, you know, because these scooter companies do benefit people. Like, people do seem to like them. But you get to these things where they've got to have a a contract with the city. Otherwise, they're going to get kicked out of the town or whatever. And, And then, of course, you end up with these sort of monopoly situations where it's like one scooter company comes in and gets this contract with the city. And then essentially it's to the exclusion of any other scooter companies from coming in doing the same thing.
0: And that that is exactly what has happened in a number of cities. And so the result is that you have these nascent industries that in a lot of ways are very publicly beneficial in the sense that they're better for the environment. You know, they take up less space and they're efficient. And so you want these services to scale because they reduce the reliance on the automobile, but they simply haven't been allowed to scale because of exactly the arrangement you describe. There's no existing right-of-way for them, and the cities are not creative enough to develop a right-of-way that will accommodate them. What we're describing makes sense as far as the privatization or or de, de-something that you described. <laughs>
1: well, actually, we've got this word we've created called uh, destatalization. But uh, we, we don't expect that to really catch Destabilization. <laughs> Divestiture was the word that Tim used, yeah.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I think these ideas make sense, but um, the chance of them passing politically seems very, very low because if New York City just started selling its curb space to Uber, you can imagine just the shrieking that would take place from the body politic there. Oh, yeah. But I mean, it's rational and it, it makes sense to me.
1: Well, and the thing is, I lived in Boston for a little while when I was in in college, And, uh, for a little while I had a car down there and, you know, I just, I just park on the street, but it would take me like, I'd get home from work and it would take me an hour to circle around waiting for someone to pull out so I could get a spot on street parking. And it's sort of two things. So, so there's this free street parking more or less, which kind of gives you the illusion that you can access that space and, and that you can use that parking. But of course it's free. So it gets used up very quickly. You know, even when you've got these residency passes and stuff, quite often, I think those are oversubscribed. And then as a result, because there's this free parking there, there's no market incentive to build a private car garage or something like that, which would really be a better solution in most of those cases. So what you end up with is you have these massive car garages in certain neighborhoods where if you had a more market-based approach, maybe you'd have a small car park sort of on each corner to service those local residents.
0: Yeah, and that, that's the type of thing that would probably never be allowed by the zoning It's not exactly easy just to build a small commercial garage in the middle of a residential neighborhood but i mean what you just described is exactly what i have been advocating for quite a while which is that you should have these sort of like centralized parking structures that are allowed by the market that accommodate people when the on-street parking runs out at the same time i don't really know if that would even be necessary if you simply just charged for the on-street parking Mm. like you charge for the use of permits because I think what would happen, like I, I know firsthand from the Boston situation that, yes, they do allocate too many free permits in their neighborhoods. And so what happens is you'll have all these people bring like their third or fourth cars that they never use <laughs> and just effectively store them on the streets. Yeah. And so, it, again, it's, it's that tragedy, of the commons type scenario that you're talking about
1: what would you say to let's say an opponent of getting rid of street parking which might be a, a local business owner somebody who has a shop front on that street who wants people to be able to come and park out in front of his street and be able to easily walk to his store um and not only that but he's in a place where if we get our way where you know he whoever built his building wasn't required to provide parking for those tenant spaces how would you address that i mean how, wh- what's the answer for that guy to make sure that these businesses that we want to be walkable accessible businesses with lots of other businesses just like that around them that in this day and age they're going to need parking somewhere and we might not necessarily want to fill up our downtown neighborhoods with parking garages how do you balance that
0: well i think the first step would just be to cite the market price of that space and ask the business owner if he wants to buy that space and we'll see how <laughs> we'll see how valuable it is to him <laughs> yeah i think when something has been provided for free, it's easy just to say, like, this is what I need. But I think that's the the beauty of market pricing is you actually do see what somebody needs or is willing to pay. I don't know. I've always kind of found the complaint a little odd anyway, just because I think in these urban contexts where a given storefront owner may only have a space or two designated for parking for them, usually there's other forms of customer base going on there. You know, it's not like the suburbs where almost 100% of your customers are going to be arriving by car. Usually in the urban context, a certain percentage of them arrive by transit and don't need to park. A certain percentage of them walk to the store. To take, I'd say maybe the most absurd scenario would be if you're a storefront owner in the middle of New York City and you're demanding that the parking right in front of you remains open just for you, that kind of has an absurdity to that argument, because the reality is that if you're in Manhattan and you're a storefront owner, a vast, vast majority of your customer traffic is not coming and just parking in that parking spot. It's going to people coming out of the subway, walking, biking, etc.
1: There's sort of some second and third order effects here, too, where once you actually get to the point where you're pricing the parking and essentially increasing the cost of using a car to access these places, then that's actually going to make some of the other transit options look more attractive just to the users. You know, so, and and to me, you know, driving into Manhattan or or even downtown Boston, my take is that, you know, drivers in Boston are jerks, but (laughs) uh, drivers in Manhattan are just insane. (laughs) So it's like that alone, like I I would not want to drive there. But there's also this, you know, once you start pricing this stuff properly, you get these market incentives that should incentivize other forms of transit to win out in some of those areas.
0: Yeah. And I think a third dynamic beyond just what you just mentioned is the idea of the less space you're having to dedicate to automobiles and parking, the more space you can dedicate to actually beautifying the streets. And so that can have the effect of increasing property values and increasing customer traffic. And so the interesting thing is that there are some businesses that get this, and usually they come in the form of coalitions. So There's like a lot of business improvement districts where a cluster of businesses have paid a special tax. And a lot of times those taxes go towards street beautification. So it's removing automobiles from key areas and widening the sidewalks to, say, make more room for the pedestrian or plant nice shrubbery or install public art. And so that's what actually makes the neighborhood more attractive. No, you can't go and directly park in front of the business. You might have to go to a garage. But when you get out and walk, you're seeing a more beautiful streetscape. And that makes you actually more likely to patronize the business than the other way around.
1: We're seeing some of these developments happening these days where cities are like closing down streets to cars, either restricting it to maybe just, you know, public transit only or bikes only or walking only or something like that. What's your take on that sort of stuff?
0: Well, yeah, I think it, I mean, to me, it's certainly something I personally prefer. And it it seems to make a lot of sense in the age of coronavirus now, where because of social distancing measures, a lot of restaurants don't necessarily just want to pack their people indoors. They want to have like outdoor seating and enable people to socially distant and be outside where they're less likely to catch coronavirus. And so you are seeing these retrofits where... You know, some cities are, are adapting and actually allowing the seating to go outside and taking away some of the parking spaces. But I think above all, my answer for all of it would pretty much just be let the market work. Let the consumer decide, you know, like have a market-based pricing system so that the businesses themselves kind of like decide and then pay for what they want to use that public right-of-way for and then let the consumer respond. Just let the chips fall where they may and see what happens. Well,
1: before we let you go, Scott, we did also want to talk a little bit about governance. Obviously, the word city has become synonymous with government. And when we think about governing a city, it's hard to think about that without thinking about the types of municipal governments that we have today. What do you see as some possible approaches or arguments we could make as market urbanists? For ways to get to more of a market based system of city governance?
0: Yeah, well, I think it's some of the things that we've already discussed in respect to uh, transportation. The idea that city services should not necessarily be government run, that we should explore ideas of privatization or at least kind of push in that direction. So I think some examples that I could cite here of real world examples would be something like a charter school. Where rather than having the big public monopoly school, you have a charter school, which is still publicly funded, but has a different governing model and is not like subject to the rules of the larger bureaucracy. Other examples could be, yeah, like finding public space or public right of way and I guess decoupling it from the idea of being government run, but instead being sold off to private companies or private interests who will use it in a more efficient way. Other examples of market urbanist style city governance would be things like value capture. So I'm a huge fan of the land value tax. The idea that you, rather than taxing things that are productive, like consumption and income and property improvements, you tax land, which is a way to recoup the value of the investments. I view it as being a more market oriented way of like effectively saying, This is the value that has been sunk into this land by various public and private investments, and we're going to recoup that sum and invest it back into the public. So yeah, it's thinking about market-oriented, privatized solutions that could be applied to different aspects of what we typically think of as public.
1: One of the problems I see with, uh, probably the, (laughs) the main problem I see with government provision of these services, and we've talked about this already, but there's no connection between the demand for those services and the funding and provision of those services, because everything just gets paid through various forms of taxation. You mentioned this land value taxes as one possible source that could possibly better align those tax payments with the provision of services and the provision of value that is created by those government services. Mm -hmm. But I would argue that even that is still a pretty blunt tool for funding and monetizing various services that government provides. And so I guess my my only point here is that I think that part of our goal or part of our argument should be that we need to, as you said with the charter schools, you need to separate the payment system through taxation from the provision of services and start to allow some kind of supply and demand feedback loop to come into that process where, as we've already talked about, there starts to be a more rational way of pricing these services based on how they're being used and, and who wants them and who demands them.
0: Yeah, and I mean there's other models as well that I document on my website called What Is Market Urbanism that goes into like 40 different issues. And when it comes to the city governance, there's a couple different things. I mean, not just land value tax, but something like uh, user fees. If you use the recreation center or the park or the school or the road or or whatever, you pay a user fee, and that becomes a form of revenue stream that then is used to maintain that facility. And so That quite literally is market feedback. That is the consumer is paying the amount that they perceive to be the value of using something. And so to me, that seems like a form of privatization. You know, another example would be something like tax increment financing, which the way that works is that if you want to make an improvement to a specific neighborhood, you have a special tax that is thought to be the incremental value that is created by that amenity. So the revenue that comes from that extra tax is then used to pay off the bonds used to fund the amenity. And so it's kind of like this immediate form of feedback that is very, very different than just typical property taxes.
1: Yeah. And we're, of course, with you on that. I mean, I think the user fees are they do what we've just been describing, which is to align the demand with supply and the provision of services and tell the city what's working, what isn't and what's valued and what isn't so that they can allocate their spending you know, rationally. Of course, the devil's advocate argument there would be, well, okay, if you start charging everybody for everything that they do, there's some segment of the population who's who might not be able to afford that. They might not be able to afford to pay for whatever the going rate is for a parking space or for a public park or whatever the charge is out there. So the concern would be that you start to create this kind of two tier system of people who can pay for all these services and people who can't. What would you say to an argument like that?
0: Well, I think that's like I think a lot of that is really settled by things like guaranteed minimum income, which I'm not necessarily an advocate for, but that's a lot of times people advocate for something like that so that people can have their basic provisions. But I also look at the voucher model as you distribute vouchers to people who are below a certain income threshold, and then they use it to buy the public services that they want and that they value. And so an example that I find really compelling and that I'd like to see tried in an American city is, rather than funding an MTA, like basically saying, we're going to provide the transit ourselves by funding an MTA and a transit bureaucracy, just give people transportation vouchers and let them shop the private transit market. And so I think you would probably have more efficiency and consumer choice than just having this big monopoly that requires ongoing funding and has all kinds of public choice problems and inefficiencies.
1: Yeah, I I would agree with that. Right now what we have is a system where the supply of services is being used as a means of wealth redistribution. And I think that whether or not you think that there should be some kind of forced wealth redistribution like we have now with various government systems, as you just said, I think that we could kind of compromise and then say, okay, yeah, we let's have some kind of wealth distribution like that can be the thing that government does. And again, I'm not arguing for this. I'm saying that let's just take that and set that aside. Like we're not going to fight that fight right now. But why would we want that wealth distribution system to be funneled through the way that roads get built, and the way that things get developed, and the way that infrastructure is provided? Why don't we just price those things rationally so that they can respond rationally to a market and then have the wealth distribution be its own separate efficient system that actually gets wealth efficiently to the people who might need it? And as you said, maybe that takes the form of vouchers or, or or something else. But yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think that the idea that we're gonna provide all these free services to people because there is a small group of people who otherwise might not be able to, to afford them, it just sets the services themselves up for, for failure.
0: Well, I saw an interesting tweet the other day by a handle that had some sort of neoliberal tagline. I think it might've been like Los Angeles neoliberal or whatever. And so neoliberalism, I don't know if you would describe that as full-on libertarianism, but they kind of have some of the same mentalities. And the tweet he wrote was, fund people, not bureaucracy. And so I think what he was going with there is, if you're going to have government spending and government programs, just send it as a direct check to the people who are going to use it the way they want rather than having the Department of Transportation and the Department of Sanitation and all these different departments that are all kind of like patronage ridden and not really efficient. And so I think there's a lot of wisdom to that. And if we're going to have government funding, I I would sooner it be in that manner than the existing one.
1: Yeah, I would agree. Because what that does is that it opens up these services to allow for competition and allow for other market actors to come in and possibly provide better, more efficient, cheaper services. I mean, you could think of the example of schooling. You mentioned charter schools. Right. You could imagine if a school district, you know, if a town took its school district and rather than buying the buildings and hiring the teachers and everything, they say, we're going to keep everything just as it is. We'll keep running this organization, the school organization. But rather than taking the money to pay for that, you know, out of property taxes or whatever and just grabbing it out of the general pool of funding, we're going to figure out that this is how much tuition costs for each student. You send that voucher or whatever it is to each student. And then they pay it to their school, and then that gets paid back through the system to make it work. But then you allow other providers to come in and to provide services where they could possibly get funded by those vouchers as well. So that over time, if there's some private school provider who's going to come in and provide a better service, then they'd be able to do that. And you don't have the situation where in order for somebody to send their kid to a private school, they have to pay all the property taxes plus tuition to another private school. That's just, you know, just one example. But you can imagine that being extended to all the other various services that government provides.
0: Yeah. And I think the barrier to all of this type of thing is political. Like, it makes sense on paper. I don't see how anybody can't think that it makes sense. But there's so much vested interest. There's so many, like, little special interests and sort of patronage mills that exist within our city governments that it's hard to imagine these programs really happening. I mean, like a a public school division is never gonna be in favor of just giving people vouchers because they probably know that they'll use the vouchers to go to private schools because private schools give better education. And so it's sort of like they know their careers are done if we ever have a program like that. And so there's just not like this incentive there to really do that sort of radical reform.
1: So Scott, just to wrap this up here, what do you see as the impact market urbanism is starting to have in the world of development? You mentioned, I think, one or two success stories earlier. Do you see this as something that people are starting to become aware of and to understand, or are you seeing pushback from certain segments?
0: I think at this point, it's more of an idea. I think it's more in the idea stage. And market urbanism is not the only organization or movement per se pushing these ideas. Like, You've obviously got the YIMBY movement, which is far more further along in their development and kind of funding. And they're pushing the same message of basically, we need more housing, we need more density, we need to legalize cities and allow transit and all these kinds of things. The strong towns movement kind of has some of the same messaging of, you know, we need to have more efficient use of land so that our infrastructure bills are not making us insolvent. There's some overlap there with market urbanism. Congress of New Urbanism, also, you know, they're very much against the idea of having Euclidean zoning that effectively forces sprawl, and they're very into the idea of, like, changing the zoning codes to allow more flexibility and density and form and urban-based design. So, yeah, they're... Obviously, in architecture would be another, you know, like you're an outlet that is advocating for these types of things. So I think at the level of general advocacy, there are a lot of people saying we need better cities and we need better laws or less laws to really allow cities to be great. As far as like the actual tangible policy, I don't really know that it's really too far along yet. We're seeing some state level bills that try to make more housing legal by right. There's just a lot of political resistance and inertia to really making these mainstream, and so I'm kind of in it for the long haul, and I'm I'm really like passionate about the ideas and really interested in gradually seeing this change. I guess over the course of years or maybe even decades.
1: It's certainly an inspirational movement to us, anyways, as libertarians. And I think you mentioned strong towns, and we had Chuck Moran on recently. Well, recently for us means like a year ago, but <laughs> 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 but uh, we've seen a pretty good response within the libertarian community to the interview that we did with Chuck to the point where, you know, we're seeing some people that I didn't even really know were, were into this kind of stuff that are starting to refer to, to strong towns and mention some of these ideas by name. And I'm sort of hoping that this interview has a similar effect and that some of those people will start tuning into more of the, the Market Urbanism stuff and, of course, to your stuff. So, Scott, do you want to give us some plugs? Where can people find your work?
0: Sure. So my blog is marketurbanismreport.com, and we publish an article every week and usually a podcast every month. We also have social media threads on Facebook. We have a Facebook group, a Facebook page, a Twitter handle, and an Instagram handle. And if you're going to follow one of them, I strongly recommend the Facebook group. That's become kind of like the hub of the market urbanism movement. There's posts every single day. There's a lot of conversation and ideas floating around on that group. And so if you had to follow one, I recommend that.
1: Well thanks Scott for joining us today on An Architecture. We really appreciate it. I think this will be a really good conversation for our audience and, and hopefully some of them will go and check out all of your great work as well.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot. I enjoyed it.
1: Thanks for listening to An Architecture Podcast, the built environment of a stateless society. Visit anarchitecturepodcast.com to follow our blog and social media, and find out how you can support us through Patreon or with cryptocurrency. So first of all, how would you define market urbanism? God, I can't speak. It's it's 8.30 a.m. Like, I haven't had a breakfast yet. (laughs) (laughs) Did you want to get into any of these? You've got these big picture questions. Do we want to sort of...
0: Let's see. It's eight. It's eight forty-two. I haven't had dinner yet. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll, let we'll let you go. Yeah, but uh, but yeah. I mean, if you wanna if you wanna do a couple more questions, I'm fine with it. Yeah. When do you think it's gonna get published? Is that gonna be like a?
1: Oh, let's. <laughs> Joe, can we mark our calendars? Jeff? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, um, clear your summer.